Well, either people are delayed by the fog or they realized who was teaching this morning, so they decided not to show up. But let's, uh, let's pray together as we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it uh, reminds us that even in a world that may seem shaky and unstable around us, that we have the assurance of your promises that extend from eternity past all the way into eternity future. Uh, we pray that you would help us uh, as we study your word uh, to re- be reminded of the confidence that we have in you and to find joy in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I always start my prayer at precisely the wrong time. But we are in Second Thessalonians. We will finish up chapter 2 today. And then next week, we will really get on our... Um, fast train and do all of chapter three in one week so we can finish up by the end of the year and I can keep my promise. (laughs) Uh, Second Thessalonians chapter two and we're going to we're only only going to deal with a a shorter passage um, this week but it's a very compact passage and there's a lot here so I think we will with uh, not have any trouble filling our time. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand fast and hold, uh, or stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and uh, word. So this is a remarkable passage. Um, particularly um, as it stands um, in the aftermath of what he's been talking about. So you'll remember, um, if you were here last week, or if you've read the passage previously, that Paul starts chapter 2 by expressing concerns um, that they are being shaken. So in chapter 2 and verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So that, because of some bad doctrine they had been taught or had picked up somehow, um, they were being shaken. And the term there is like a ship out on a stormy sea. Um, So that was the condition that some of this bad doctrine had left them in. And in correcting the bad doctrine that... um, that they had uh, picked up, he does talk to them about some disturbing and concerning things about the coming of the man of lawlessness or the the Antichrist, as we commonly refer uh, him as to him as. And so he talks about some disturbing things, and even people within the church, um, those who are not elect, but people nonetheless within the visible church, will be deceived by this person and. And there will be persecution and so forth. And so Paul talks about some disturbing things. And yet, after providing um, this teaching here in the passage that we just read, 
he concludes by pointing to the fact that God has loved us and uh, has given us eternal comfort and good hope. And so because of what Paul talks about here in these concluding verses, those who had been uh, shaken can instead find um, eternal comfort and good hope because of the assurances that we have in God. And that assurance is that God has us in his plan that began in eternity past and that extends into eternity future. Um, So Paul is talking about, or has been talking about a formidable enemy. And and yet he assures us um, that we are headed toward a different destination than those that are following the man of lawlessness. And this is all because of the fact that God has acted decisively in our behalf. And so let's, first of all, then look at what I'm calling the decisive difference. And you notice that verse 13 starts with the word, but, and that indicates that Paul is contrasting what he's about to say with what has gone on before. So let's look back as a reminder at what has gone on before and look back beginning with verse 9 um, of chapter 2. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in righteousness. But we ought always to give thanks. And so think about the people that Paul is describing about describing in those previous verses. These are people that will be deceived by the lawless one and the satanic power that stands behind him. That's uh, found in verse 9. In verse 12, we read that these are people that refuse to love the truth and be saved and had pleasure in unrighteousness. And then in the passage that follows that, God confirms them in their unbelief so that they will believe what is false. Now notice here that God does not do anything that keeps people that want to be saved from being saved. But rather it's the opposite. These are people that are rejecting the truth. And later later in uh, verse uh, 12, they are described as people that had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in God. Uh, They reject Him and they find their pleasure in unrighteousness. And um, rather than... Um, appealing to these to do something to try to draw them to themselves, God simply gives them what they want. And so you, you are re- they are rejecting God, they are finding pleasure in unrighteousness, and so in, in the wording of the passage, uh, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. God simply goes ahead and gives them what they want anyway. You want to uh, reject the truth and believe uh, falsehood. Uh, You want to find pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, then go right ahead. And so they continue to follow um, the the, uh, man of lawlessness. 
Uh, some people have objections to this, but I think that the objections largely rise from this, arise from this notion that people have that the doctrine of election or the idea that God passes over uh, folks means that people that want to be saved can't be saved. And I, in my discussions with people that aren't reformed about election, that's uh, my discussions about election with people that aren't reformed. That's the objection I hear regularly. Well, you're saying that that there's somebody who wants to be saved, but if they're they're not elect, they can't be. And that's not what we're saying at all. Um, actually, there are people that um, that they don't have any interest in God or the truth or in righteousness. Uh, they reject Him, and so God has passed them over, and they will not uh, be sa- be um, saved. And so that's the class of people that are being discussed in chapter 2 and verses 9 and following. These are people that reject God, and God confirms them. God, uh, um, again, as the wording uh, says, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They already believe what is false. And God says, you reject me, well, keep going on your own way. And so that's the explanation of these who are um, being described as followers of the man of lawlessness or the, or the Antichrist. But then in our passage, you get the adversative, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the God, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And so there's a contrast. God saw those people that rejected him and he confirmed or he uh, confirmed them in their unbelief he um, he sent them a strong delusion so that they would believe what is false but in contrast for those that are saved there's the emphasis that God chose us uh, to be saved and so what is the difference um, that's described here between those who reject Christ and those that follow him, those that are unbelievers, and those that believe. Is it that we were smarter than them and we figured it out? Is it that we're better people and so we found pleasure from the start in righteousness, unlike those bad people that found pleasure in unrighteousness? No, the difference is the decisive act of God. We, We could have been just like them. Um, but it's the decisive activity of God that has put us um, on a different path. He has chosen us uh, to be saved. And so that adversative is important, and it's important to realize, it's important for our worship, our thanksgiving, our praise, to recognize that salvation really is completely of the Lord. We could, have been, we could be just like those others that remain in lost or that are described in our lost condition or that are like those described here as followers of the Antichrist. We could be on that same path. The difference is that God has acted from eternity decisively in our uh, behalf. Um, and so we actually have here a chain of activities and we, what, what you notice here is emphasized is 
the activity of God at every link of the chain. Now, when we talk about God's golden chain of redemption, uh, we normally, um, normally, if you hear that phrase, uh, people are thinking of Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, where you have uh, similar thoughts as to what you have here. Those whom um, God um, foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified, it says in Romans 8. Um, This is actually a similar passage. The elements are not exactly the same. Um, There is overlap, but in neither instance is the purpose to be uh, comprehensive with everything that God um, does, um, every element for our redemption. But rather in each instance, and certainly here, the focus is on the idea that God started something in eternity past, he continues it in time, and he extends it into eternity future, And that's the reason that he's giving here that even in a world of instability, and actually the emphasis in Romans 8 is similar, even in a world of instability, even in a world that one day will seem dominated by the presence of Antichrist operating by his satanic power, even in that kind of world, we have assurance because God has acted on our behalf beginning in eternity past, continuing in time, and by promise extending into eternity future. The emphasis is the same in Romans 8, where Paul has been talking about the severe suffering uh, that Christians sometimes experience. He has told them there uh, that they will suffer, but he assures them that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And then in the aftermath of promising that God... um, Uh, that God works all things together for good to those that love him, he then gives that golden chain of redemption. God started working in our behalf in eternity past. He continues in time. He promises that it will be completed in eternity future. And so even with suffering, we can be confident that we are part of God's plan. We are God's children. God will finish that which he has started. Um, If you're not in a period of your life right now where you're suffering, that can be encouraging because the day will come when you are suffering and so you can prepare. If you are at a point in life where you're experiencing some hardships, you can find comfort in this because your suffering is not going to separate you um, from the love of God. Um, He's already planned for you. He's continuing to work in you. He will complete what he started. And so that's what we find here um, in these verses. I'm lecturing and so forth. Does anybody want to jump in before we get into some of the detail? I do have one thing. I, I really struggled with that. Can you about this tradition where it was my job to get up? It was my job to pray the prayer of salvation. It was, I had to do it. I had to initiate my salvation. And, and for me, that, that seemed to make sense because that's what I was raised in. But if I initiate it, then I have to maintain it. Yeah, I, I think that in the way that um, that many of us were taught to think about salvation, that we emphasize our activities and forget about God's. 
So it is proper to emphasize that we believe in Christ. Um, and we do. Um, I, one time I was um, in a Bible study with somebody that was new to um, Reformed doctrine, and somebody mentioned um, accepting Christ. And he said, oh, no, don't talk like that. We're Reformed. And I, I said, well, brother, um, remember that it's John's gospel, not a, a modern evangelical that said, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And so, um, you know, in, uh, talking about our belief is important. Paul here reminds them that they are to um, stand fast, that they are to, um, uh, yeah, to, to stand fast and so forth. And so, um, so we, we shouldn't imagine that we are completely passive but it's the activity of God in our behalf that is decisive. And it's the activity of God in our behalf that makes possible our response. And so, um, and, and so th- there is um, a misplaced emphasis. Great thought. Others? So let's um, quickly work through an overview of what's actually here. And then we will do our best to get into some of the detail. And so looking at verses 13 through 17, um, we see, first of all, that um, in eternity past, we were chosen by God in verse 13, because God chose you as uh, the first fruits to be saved. And then in the first part of verse 14, we are sanctified and called through the gospel in verse uh, 14 also. To this, he called you through the gospel, or no, verse 13, um, because uh, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel. That's 13 and 14. I wrote it down wrong in my notes. And then with regard to eternity future, um, there is the promise of glorification, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of verse 14. In the light of these facts, we are then told in verse 15 that we should stand firm. So then, Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And then in verses 16 and 17, we have a benediction in which he um, speaks of the eternal comfort and good hope that we've spoken of already. Um, As we've been saying, notice that the entire emphasis here is on salvation from first to last as God's decisive activity at each point. with each element that's described here, um, it's described as the work of God. And as a matter of fact, there's a strong Trinitarian um, focus here. And so in verse uh, 13, but we always ought to give thanks to God, brothers beloved by the Lord, uh, here likely speaking of God the Father and the Lord as uh, Christ, and then sanctification by the Spirit. And so you have a strong trinitarian element here that all three members of the trinity are actively at work with regard to our eternal salvation and so the emphasis is on god's uh, decisive activity um, from first to last all that we bring to salvation all that we bring to salvation is our sins from which we must be forgiven and for which christ died Um, faith is our empty hand receiving God's gifts. What differentiates uh, the redeemed um, from those that are perishing 
is that God has brought us to life, given us faith, sanctified us by his spirit, and enabled us to obtain glory. From first to last, it is the work of God. Um, Notice that Paul does not describe these things as though he expects the Thessalonians to think of them as controversial. They were not. In our day, partly for the reasons that you described, many people think that these things are controversial. Paul did not write this in order to help us win arguments with Methodists. Um, But rather, he gave us these things for our comfort, um, for our confidence, for our assurance. And so these are... um, I think because in our day that these are considered, especially the doctrine of election, is considered um, um, controversial, that sometimes we lose sight of what really is intended for these uh, by this teaching in Scripture. And so Paul started this passage by saying, um, we ought always to give thanks. It's a source of thanksgiving. Um, in Ephesians 1, but... Uh, Praise be to God who has chosen us uh, in, uh, well, I thought I could quote it, but I can't. Um, I should call on Pastor Joe, he can quote it. (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And so it's a source of praise. So thanksgiving and praise and confidence and assurance. These are the things that this teaching provides us that we lose if we think that it's more up to us and less a matter of God's decisive activity. And so let's look at some of the details then, unless somebody wants to uh, pitch in with what we've been saying. Um, The first element is that we've been chosen by God. Um, We've already noted that there's uh, the passage mirrors in many ways what we found in in Romans uh, 8, verses 29 and 30. We've also commented that election here is given as a reason for thanksgiving and a source of assurance and comfort. Um, there, there is an interest, an, an unusual phrase here in, um, in the passage. It says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That's, my, that's the ESV translation. Are any of you using other translations? In the beginning, that's either the King James NIV, NIV, others. Yeah. So um, the the uh, and in the beginning is probably um, the better reading. Um, I probably should defer to the Greek scholars that worked on um, the ESV, but there were Greek scholars that worked on the other translations too. So I've got them on my side. Um, it's it's. Um, from, from the old manuscripts, and we have hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts of the New Testament or various letters of the New Testament from very, very early on. And in, uh, in this verse, there's a difference in the manuscripts that basically is 50-50. Some of them read, and the, the Greek word behind, it, behind the two words, two English words is similar. And so at some point, somebody made a copyist error. But um, the passage either is in the beginning or um, as the first fruits. 
Um, the reason that first fruits is unlikely is largely um, the fact that Paul never Paul uses the term first fruits in other contexts, um, but never uses it with regard to the doctrine of election. And so um, it just seems strange and misplaced here. Um, there's nothing wrong with it if you uh, regard it as first fruits. It doesn't change any doctrine or theology or anything. It, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong about the term, but in the beginning um, seems to fit with the idea of election better. And so the idea, um, with either regard really, is that God chose us um, from the foundations of the world to be saved. Um, Textual criticism, I I hate to take this detour, but I think it's confusing to some people. Um, Have you heard of text? what we call textual criticism before? Is that a new concept? Some of you are either asleep or looking at me funny. And so let's just take a couple of minutes. Um, And if I confuse everybody, then Pastor Joe can clean it all up later. But one of the wonderful things about the New Testament is, as I mentioned a minute ago, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies of of parts of the New Testament. And and some of the, the early copies are significant, I mean, entire books and entire sets of letters and so forth so lots of it and it's an amazing thing about the New Testament because if you go back to some of the other ancient works that um, we study in school I mean there might be you know something by um, Plato or one of the ancient Greek philosophers we might have you know five copies of it um, and so um, so the the remarkable amount of material that we have uh, of the New Testament books is, is really amazing. Well, the, they were making copies because from early on they realized that this, from early on they realized that this was authoritative scripture, and so they wanted to distribute it everywhere, and so they copied it quickly to send it out. And so sometimes in the process, of, actually the New Testament copyists were not nearly as... Um, as uh, as careful as those that copied the Old Testament um, books, interestingly enough. But they were in a rush to get it out, and so sometimes they would make um, they would make um, mistakes in copying. And uh, so um, and, and 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 most of them are minor and are easy to figure out. You know, misspelling somebody's name, um, that sort of thing, or you know, if in if in English. I were writing the word union, and I uh, copied it as onion, you'd be reading it and say, oh, he obviously meant union because that fits the context. So there, there are things such as that that are obvious. And then there are places where, where um, there, there are only two extended areas of the New Testament that are questioned. One is the story where Jesus um, is, uh, has brought to him the woman that was committing adultery, there's a question as to whether that was originally in John's Gospel. And the last uh, 10 or 12 verses in the Gospel of Mark um, are not in some of the early manuscripts. Those are really the only extended passages. There's no, there's no um, copying error any place in the New Testament that really affects any doctrine of our faith. And so it's just a matter of studying the different manuscripts and trying to figure out which is the best reading of the New Testament. 
Now, until the last um, few years, this was the sort of thing that only um, Greek scholars got excited about because, you know, most of the rest of us just, you know, we took our Bibles that we have and, and we accepted them, which is not a bad thing to do. It's um, actually a good thing to do um, because those that stand behind these translations have studied these things thoroughly. Oh, I see John's back there. He could explain this better than me, too. But um, but um, in the last few years, there is a guy that teaches um, religion at the University of North Carolina named Bart Ehrman that started to try to make a big deal out of this. And he goes around lecturing on college campuses and that sort of thing. And he says, we really don't have any idea what the New Testament says because there are so many thousands of errors in it that it's all convoluted and we don't really know what it says. I can't judge Ehrman's motivations that would be uncharitable. Um, He's a really smart guy, and there's part of me that thinks that he must really know better than this. Because the fact of the matter is that the enormous number of manuscripts that we have doesn't cause us to doubt that we know um, what the New Testament originally stated in the, um, with, the, with what the authors wrote. But actually we have, because of all the manuscripts and all the analysis that's gone into this, we have tremendous confidence that we have an accurate Bible that's true to what the writers originally wrote. And so um, it is becoming controversial if you have kids in college, they may hear about some of this, and, and Herman has written some books um, and his view is what people commonly see on the cable networks, the Discovery yeah. Channel, this and that, History Channel, whatever. Whenever they talk about biblical issues, they're usually kind of like the news, whatever's newsworthy, the new thing that is uh, different or contrary to the traditional thing, that's what we're going to focus on on TV. And that's what most people are picking up. And so it does. it very much behooves us to somehow get, you know, yeah. introduced to this topic to some extent to just to guard our own faith. Yeah, exactly. And and when he talks about the number of variant um, um, texts, it sounds impressive to people that don't actually know what he's talking about. Um, but if you know a little bit more, you realize that it really is not as big of a deal as he makes it. Yeah. The difficulty of coming up with a doctoral thesis is worthy when you really don't have the ability to think broadly is, is sometimes causes some of these ridiculous things. Maybe slash on. Oh, yeah. What was that two-word thing you said that we're talking about? Those literary what? Uh, textual criticism. Thank you. Textual criticism. Yes, there, there are different types of... Um, when we say criticism, we're not saying that they're criticizing the Bible, but it, it's a word meaning analysis. So textual criticism is the science of looking at the various manuscripts and trying to figure out um, which one is most likely to have been the original. Um, And they use lots of different criteria. I'll make something that's fairly complicated. I'll try to simplify it some. So they'll look at things like what are the dates of those manuscripts? So if you have something that's from the 2nd century, as opposed to something else that's from the 4th or 5th century, well, weight might be given to the earlier uh, document. Um, they'll also look at um, 
the numbers of manuscripts. So if you have 10 that read this way, but 50 that read that way, you might weigh the 50 heavier unless the 10 were all earlier. <laughs> so you have, um, and then they'll also try to think through, well, what would have likely caused them to make the mistake? Is there, is there a reading, is there an, uh, is there an original word that might have caught the copyist by surprise? And so he might have thoughtlessly, not intentionally, but thoughtlessly transposed the word that he was expecting instead of the one that was there. So there are all kinds of ways of thinking about this. It's, it's, um, it's a very detailed science, and anybody that has a Greek New Testament, it's got lots of footnotes in it that will give all the variants and sometimes the reasons why they made the choice that they did and so forth. It's, um, again, I, yeah. Ehrman is a serious man and um, a, good, a good scholar. He actually was raised in the evangelical church and is now an atheist. Um, he's a serious man and a serious scholar, but I hear his arguments and I have a hard time taking it seriously, although he, he's making quite a splash. He may suffer from the same issue that Stephen Hawking had, which was whenever he felt like seemed to become irrelevant, he'd make a statement on God. I mean, it, it seemed almost it seemed almost a complete reaction. Whenever his books fell out of a certain uh, sway, he which his books are brilliant and, and, you know, they're changing the genre, but once he lost general appeal, he'd make a statement on God, like, oh, there's no God, I figured this out. And it, it happened three or four times throughout his career. So. And, and there may be something to that. I, I have tried to not um, um, judge Ehrman's motives, but I, I have a hard time not thinking that there's something to that. Kind of like back when I used to try to blog on Reformed theology, if, if my responses kept falling off, I would just do a post on limited atonement. And <laughs> yeah, that that reminds me of in the early days of talk radio, and one of the big, um, big early talk radio people was Larry King, and King said, whenever ratings went down, you got a psychic on. People people would start calling in. You had something. That's very, that is exactly they are, right. they are treated the way that we would treat a text that was written in 1700. Um, so it's only the, you know, the text of the New Testament, which there are a great many more copies, as you just pointed out, that are treated in this ludicrous reading um, of that they're somehow fantastical. They're treated as if they were done in, you know, the, the darkest mist you know, most mystical period of history and not one of the most literate, mm -hmm. uh, technologically advanced empires in human history until basically the 1800s. Um, no other text from first, second century Rome is treated like this. And that's, that's a profoundly important point and, and exactly right. Um, the, other, the other way this contrast comes up is with regard to the, um, 
the Gnostic Gospels, which have far fewer copies. They were not distributed widely because they were not accepted by the church. Um, all of them were written later initially. Um, many of them were scarcely known at all until the discoveries that, of the uh, Nag Hadagi um, stuff in Egypt. Um, but they are um, for reasons that have more to do with ideology than um, sound um, religious analysis. Um, they, they are given a lot of publicity. Um, so, but different situation, but similar principle. But yeah, uh, it, actually, if, you want, if people were as skeptical about um, secular documents from that age as they are about Christian documents, it would be difficult to prove that Julius Caesar even existed. Um, and, and so it's, uh, there is a double standard there. Yeah. So it's kind of good to have that double standard. I think it just reinforces that the world's not, the world fights against it. I mean, that's what we should expect. It's not surprising that these things are going on because it's, it's Christianity and, and, and the world's going to be against it unless God has given them the ability to not be. And it's really kind of reassuring if everybody was buying into it and not giving it the scrutiny of other things. I think that's good in some ways. It tells us we're on the right track. Very true. And, and you know, we, we just, I think sometimes we've got to find ways to get the word out, and especially to our kids that are going off to college and maybe hearing things that they've never heard about before. And they think, oh, this, this is stuff that they don't know about in church, but it really disproves some of the stuff that I've grown up with. So they hear about uh, Bart. Or my, I just finished uh, reading a book by, of essays by C.S. Lewis. A different subject, but somewhat similar to what we're talking about. He said that, um, he pointed out that some um, religious uh, liberals uh, were, would describe the, um, the Gospels as legends. And... Lewis, of course, said, I'm a professor of ancient literature. If these were legends, they were really lousy legends because they don't have any of the elements of legends from that period. And so, you know, we have, we have responses to these sorts of things. Um, but um, when church members or especially young people have never heard of it before, uh, they might find it more convincing than, than perhaps they should. Other thoughts? I meant to take a short detour and I took a long one instead. Okay, we talked about election. Um, the idea of election, or we talked about it briefly, the idea of election is that God determined that he would save a people and save persons for himself out of the mass of fallen humanity. The election is by his grace and it's for the praise of his glory. His choice is for reasons entirely of his own. It is neither arbitrary, nor is it based on um, foreseen merit or faith. Um, election is the ultimate source of saving faith, not its result. And so that's just a, a quick summary of what, um, what Paul's talking about here. Uh, the next elements that Paul um, talks about are um, sanctification and faith. And so in, in verse 13... Um, at the close of it, he says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Those seem to be reverse of what we might expect. Um, we might expect belief of the tr in the truth to come before sanctification by the Spirit. 
But Paul here probably is not emphasizing the order of salvation as much as he's emphasizing the ongoing nature of faith. So when we talk about being justified by faith, we're talking about something that happens decisively and all at once. But that doesn't mean that faith stops once we're justified. Faith is a characteristic of the entire Christian life. And so um, that's probably what Paul, or it is, I would say, what Paul is emphasizing here. Um, Sanctification, that term speaks of our um, ongoing growth in in the faith where we die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. Unlike justification, which is a once and for all act, God declares us to be righteous because of Christ. Um, Sanctification is an ongoing process that is never completed in this life. Um, Our sanctification is progressive, it is ongoing, but um, really it is not complete until the next element that Paul mentions um, in verse... um, um, or, or actually, it's not the next one, but the final one, uh, which is uh, th- that we're, uh, we obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's our glorification that actually is the completion of our sanctification. The other element that he mentions here is to this he called you, calling um, through our gospel. The term calling is used differently at different t- places in the Bible and in the New Testament. And it's also been emphasized differently at different points in church history. But here... Um, calling um, would have the idea of um, a synonym for regeneration. It is the activity by which God brings the dead to life. Um, Think about Ephesians 2, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, um, he has uh, made you alive um, in Christ. And so calling is um, the activity by which God brings the dead to life um, and uh, it is described as he calls us through the gospel. And so it is by the preaching of the gospel that God enlivens our hearts. And when God brings the dead to life, he makes it possible that we would believe the gospel. So notice the order here. And it's the order um, in Ephesians 2. It's the order in John chapter 3 where he talks. Jesus talks about the new birth. The order is that we are regenerated or we are called and then we believe. It's not the other way around. A lot of folks have the idea it's the other way around. We believe and then we're born again. But actually, we are born again. We are born from above and then we believe. That is the biblical order. Dead people can't believe. Dead people can't do much of anything. They're dead. But God brings us to life. And, um, and then we uh, believe because he's brought us to life. And then the final element is glorification. And that looks to eternity, future. And it is as certain as the rest. Now one thing that we want to say here, that God talks about, or Paul talks about God's um, decrees from eternity past. He chose us. And he talks about eternity, future. But it's not like this is something that's just hanging in the clouds someplace. It works its way out in real time. And God um, uses means to accomplish what he's determined to do. Um, Some people have the idea that, you know, if God elected you, it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. That's not the way it works. 
those that God has chosen, He brings to saving faith. And how does He do that? Do, do people just wake up in the middle of the night and decide, well, never heard of this before, but I'm going to believe in it? No. God calls people and brings them to faith through the preaching of the gospel. And so um, what God determined to do in eternity, what he will complete in eternity, he accomplishes through means in time. And so all of this um, works together. Uh, The idea that God uh, determines does not in any way preclude the use of means. The other thing that comes up from time to time is if you believe in election, who do you preach to? Just the elect? We don't know who they are. And I I referred to it, I think, last week, but I'll do it again just because I like it so much. Um, Some of you weren't here. But Spurgeon, the great English Baptist uh, preacher, Calvinistic in his um, theology from a Baptist perspective, Spurgeon said, well, if I could lift up the shirt tail, the coat tails of people and see, you know, elect stamped on their backs, I would know which were which, then I'd just preach to the elect. But since people don't have that stamped on their back, I just preach the gospel to everybody. And that's a good way to think about it. We share the gospel with everyone, knowing that those whom God has chosen, he will call, he will sanctify, he will glorify. And so we just share Um, God's word with everybody. So in light of that, Paul concludes with, some people say that this is a prayer. Some people say that it's a benediction. So I call it a prayerful benediction. How's that? Um, So in verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So I've got to finish up. I hear the bell. But think about this. This is a church of brand new Christians, severely persecuted, suffering, poor. They had had members of their congregation die, and they were confused about how that relates to the second coming. They had heard about this powerful personage called the Antichrist, and they were concerned about what that was going to mean for them, or called the man of lawlessness. But Paul here tells them, about the assurance they have because God has acted decisively in behalf of them for their eternal salvation. And so Paul then says, um, well, first he's told them to stand firm, and I didn't mean to skip over that, but I'm out of time. He tells them to stand firm, hold to the traditions, and then he promises them from God, he loved us, he gave us eternal comfort, and he gave us good hope. So what is it we're enduring in our time? We suffer from some of the same things that the folks of this church suffered. Um, Uncertainties, death, illness, things that would cause us to despair. None of those things ultimately, oh, they hurt during in time, but they don't ultimately shake us because we have confidence that God has chosen us He's working in us, and he's promised us that he's going to bring us all the way home. And that's a good word for us. Um, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have given, and we pray that you would help us to find rest in them. 
Uh, we pray for the worship service that's about to happen, that you would be glorified um, in all that we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.